Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov. I am one of the senior editors of the Oxford Journal Global Summetry. It's my pleasure today to introduce two very eminent scholars of uh, peace and security in international relations. Daniel Druckmann, who has for many years been involved in conflict management, negotiating behavior, peacekeeping. In addition, it's my great pleasure to introduce Peter Wallenstein. Peter is, of course, one of the great pioneers of peace research, and his involvement in this area goes back into the 1960s. Our interest in this podcast was in part encouraged by the G20 leaders meeting in Hamburg, Germany last month. In addition, Daniel and Peter were good enough to provide an article which came out in Volume 2, Issue 2 of the journal Global Summetry. That particular article was titled, Summit Meetings, Good or Bad for Peace? And in that article, the two authors sought to understand whether summit meetings between contending states have an impact on their bilateral relations that relate to questions of war or conflict outcomes. We thought that the first meeting uh, between President Donald Trump of the United States and President Vladimir Putin of Russia was a very opportune time to discuss these issues. The data set that was presented in the paper and that they're going to talk about today was and is related to the summit meetings of the Soviet Union and then Russia from 1943 up until 2014. So without further ado, I'm very pleased to introduce both these eminent scholars. So welcome, Peter and Dan. Uh, we're very pleased to have you for this uh, Global Summetry Now podcast. The fact is, of course, uh, you have done an enormous amount of research in international relations and certainly on summits. And recently, Global Summetry uh, published an article by both of you in uh, Volume 2, uh, Issue 2, and it was entitled... Uh, summit meetings, good or bad for peace. So maybe both of you can describe the nature of the research you're undertaking. Okay, thanks, Alan. Uh, let me give it a start and then uh, pass it over to Peter, and we'll uh, try our best to go back and forth. Sounds good. Um, let me let me just provide a little bit of background to our discussion uh, to come. Okay. Uh, so Peter and I began talking about a project like this way back in 2004 when we shared an office at the University of Queensland in Brisbane. The, uh, our discussion was uh, initiated, motivated by a joint interest that we had in the role of interpersonal relations between leaders and the effects of those relationships on foreign policy decision making. So we began modestly uh, by cataloging examples, and we had many anecdotes, such as Carter at Camp David and Reagan Gorbachev at Reykjavik. Uh, we also uh, tried to be a little more rigorous by developing a scale to measure trust between the leaders. And we also conducted uh, a couple of case studies with a graduate student at Notre Dame. 
and that was okay, but uh, still not not quite publishable, not systematic enough. And we realized that in order to make a stronger claim about the role of international relations, we needed to be more systematic. Uh, and uh, this realization, uh, along with articles that we were reading by Galtung and by uh, Thompson and Modelsky, uh, served to move us more in the direction of considering summitry as a kind of typical forum for interacting leaders, for opportunities for leaders to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. So we realized that a systematic study required an historical data set, and we then set out very ambitiously, this was probably about, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, to kind of put together, cobble together uh, a data set. And here we are, um, actually 12 years later from our first discussions, with the fruits of our labor, and as you said, published in, uh, happily published in Global Summitry. So uh, we think we now have something to say about the role of interpersonal relationships in uh, foreign policy decisions, and uh, that's what we're going to talk about in the minutes, uh, in the half hour or so to come. Um, so at this point, let me kind of pass it over to Peter to provide a description of our uh, data set. Yeah, thank you very much, Dan. Uh, and just to be clear, this is not the only thing we have been doing during all these years. But, uh, but uh, the data set now exists. And um, uh, as is mentioned in, in, in this article, it is available at my website in the Department of Peace and Conflict Research at Uppsala University, pcr.uu.se. So anybody uh, can go in there and take a look at what we have. Uh, and I think it is a fairly unique uh, data set as we have been going through uh, what historians have mentioned, what you find in the general media, etc., memoirs, um, biographies. So we have 104 summit meetings between uh, Russian or Soviet leaders on the one hand and American presidents basically on the other hand. Uh, so that's 104 starting with the first meeting during the Second World War in 1943 when uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, actually met Stalin uh, up till the end of 2014. So uh, things have happened since then of course, but the last one we have recorded is between um, President Obama and President Putin in, in Brisbane uh, in November 2014. So that's the data set we have. And to that, uh, we have added information about the summit meetings, but also uh, other ways of measuring contacts between these leaders, like uh, uh, the resolutions in the UN Security Council, etc., to get a measure of cooperation or lack of cooperation. Mm -hmm. So that's basically the basis on what we are basing our discussion today. Obviously, a length, a somewhat lengthy process, but uh, probably a necessary one. Maybe you, you can describe what you drew out as the main conclusions for uh, the article that you did for Global Summitry. Well, uh, one one first observation is just on the trends uh, that there were so many more such meetings after the end of the Cold War. 
uh, and you can say more than 80% are actually after 1990. Uh, so it's really been a thing for the past. But when people think about these summit meetings, the memories are often of the much fewer meetings that went on before that, uh, those that were in, in Tehran and Yalta, or the meetings in Vienna between Kennedy and Khrushchev, or uh, Nixon and Brezhnev, Reagan and, and Gorbachev. Uh, so they had... The, the attention to these meetings has shifted and perhaps also their political meaning has shifted since the end of the Cold War, which I think is is one interesting thing to think about. Um, I wonder, you know, looking at all the variety of conclusions you came to in the article, was there anything from your observation, the historical period of leaders, that, you know, you came away rather surprised by the conclusions you could draw uh, from your data set? Okay, yeah, I think uh, we were surprised by uh, two or three of the findings. Uh, for example, um, going into the project, we thought that summits were instrumental for managing conflicts or, more ambitiously, for sustaining the peace. Mm -hmm. However, our analysis showed quite the opposite. In fact, they showed that summits were quite uneventful. <laughs> in this regard. Mm -hmm. uh, they were surprisingly motivated by conflict. In other words, conflict was relatively high for both countries, particularly the Soviet Union, uh, Russia, but they didn't reduce the conflict from before to after. So mm -hmm. we measured the level or frequency of conflicts before the summit, measured it again after, and then we lagged it, so we measured it a little bit later on. There was virtually no difference. Uh, nothing much happened. Mm -hmm. So that's one big surprise, and that's the subtitle of the article, in fact, Good or Bad for Peace, uh, and we end up with uh, sort of a neutral conclusion. Um, we were also surprised uh, by the Soviet-Russian penchant uh, desire uh, to pursue armed conflict when at the same time they were showing cooperation. And this was a really interesting finding. It was sort of based on delving in a little more deeply, uh, statistically, mm -hmm. uh, if we can understand because we got a really strong relationship between UN resolutions and going to the summits. And that made sense to us. We tried to understand that relationship and we found that that was mediated. In other words, that was accounted for by Soviets increasing the frequency of conflicts. So what does this suggest? We think it's something like they have dual motives or they're showing two faces, something like that. On the one hand, historically, things may well be changing, but historically, they're a member of the international community in good standing, especially when they became Russia. On the other hand, they continue to be an empire-motivated imperialist power mm -hmm. with an intent to keep the world in an unbalanced or tense state. So, of course, the question is whether this is an historical trend that uh, Trump and Putin are doing their best to change. <laughs> Time will tell. And we're going to speak about that a little bit more later. Finally, uh, probably a little less surprising, but we had no reason to suspect one result or the other. We found a difference in preferences for the bilateral versus the multilateral forum. And by the way, we break our data down into those two types of uh, venues. Mm -hmm. uh, and that actually provided food for thought. It turns out that 
the U.S. much preferred the multilateral forum, went to it more frequently, and for the Russians, it was the opposite. They preferred bilateral, went to it more frequently. And that leads to one inference, uh, one implication, and that is uh, the U.S. Uh, has historically been interested in multilateral alliance-based politics, and Russia is interested more on maximizing leverage by meeting one-on-one mm-hmm. and so establishing their equality and legitimacy. So again, uh, a question based on this finding and the two others that I mentioned is whether the historical pattern will persist into the Trump-Putin years, and there's reason to suspect it may not. That's something we'll return to. Yeah, let, let me just add a little to what uh, Dan just was saying. Sure. Uh, and that was the first surprise. I mean, we did collect a lot of information on conflicts and conflict patterns before and after the beatings. Uh, and certainly you can say that that's a typical uh, peace theory, that if the leaders meet, uh, they will be able to sort out things. And so we would expect a reduction in, in conflicts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we didn't see that. Uh, and I, I thought that was rather surprising. Uh, also because so many people around the world do believe that when these leaders meet, they make deals and it will affect everybody locally or people in particular conflicts think, think that their conflict is you know, central in the meeting. Uh, of course, we do not have the transcript, so we don't know exactly what happened. But, uh, but the pattern is not that that's what they do. Uh, maybe they actually more focus on uh, bilateral issues uh, and perhaps uh, for many meetings it's the nuclear arms control issues that are central, which is basically a bilateral issue between the two. So that was uh, quite uh, surprising to see that they were not uh, that kind of game changer that that one would have expected in terms of solving conflicts. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's very good. And let me just add one other finding, which is that The predominant theme for summits historically has been security issues rather than trade issues or the symbolic uh, uh, value of going to a summit to sign agreements. So security is on their mind a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's related to conflict being a motivating factor to getting them uh, to go to the summit. Now, one of the reasons we all began talking in the last uh, couple weeks was because as uh, our audience was witness to uh, the annual G20 Leaders Summit, and in this case, the most recent summit took place in Hamburg. The host, of course, was uh, Germany. The host leader was Chancellor Angela Merkel. Um, I guess, you know, bringing it up to contemporary setting and understanding, of course, that this particular summit is not part of your data set, Did you see anything, gentlemen, in the summit that seemed to be similar or at least uh, maybe contrasting with uh, what you saw in the historical data? Good question, Alan. Um, So I'll begin and then Peter can chime in. Um, uh, Sure, this is quite the scene, wasn't it? Uh, (laughs) Actually, uh, nothing like it, as far as we can tell, in summit meetings that uh, the 104 summit meetings that we examined. Um, in fact, in terms of the way we coded summits as multilateral or bilateral, it's not clear whether to regard this meeting, and it wouldn't be clear to a coder, whether it's really bilateral or is it really multilateral. Mm-hmm. So Janice Stein, uh, in, in the previous podcast, 
depicted um, uh, the G20 as an expensive way to hold a bilateral meeting <laughs> between Trump and Putin. So it seemed, and she makes it quite clear, that the voices of the other leaders attending the meeting were largely silenced and the spotlight focused on this dynamic duo. Mm -hmm. So we have a U.S. president who devalues his country's allies, or it seems that way, uh, in favor of a long-term adversary. And again, following Janice, this may well have implications also more broadly for the liberal international order mm -hmm. uh, on the one hand, but also for U.S. institutions, particularly the intelligence community, which are under attack by this president. Mm -hmm. uh, so while this mutual admiration society is somewhat mystifying, it's there, probably there for everyone to see. It is uh, an interesting contrast uh, to the meeting in, in Brisbane in uh, November 2014, uh, when the, the scene was almost the reverse. Uh, all leaders were meeting except Putin, and Putin felt uh, quite isolated, clearly. Uh, and that was a way for the other leaders to demonstrate that they did not accept uh, what Putin had been doing in Ukraine and Crimea. Uh, and so he actually left uh, the meeting earlier. He did. So, right. so that was a very different dynamics from this meeting. Uh, where Trump and Putin go on uh, an hour and a half, more or less, uh, longer than uh, than anticipated. So yeah. I think we see a new a new phenomenon here, a new pattern that we haven't seen before. Yeah, mm. and and let let me let me add something that is counterintuitive on all of this, and this may seem hard to believe, and it's hard for me to believe, but I wonder, and let me raise a conjecture. Uh, this departure from historical trends actually may have some positive consequences. So what could these possibly be? Okay. So one possible positive out of this is that the so-called affinity uh, between these leaders could actually be beneficial by changing their relationship, historical relationship, from one of adversarial bargaining uh, to a working relationship. So another is that the bilateral symmetry that they prefer may reverse the historical trend by managing the conflict between U.S. and Russia. Mm -hmm. And a third is that Russia may move away from its two-faced strategy toward becoming an international citizen. Now, I can't imagine, but it's possible to think that they will sign resolutions, they will encourage symmetry, they'll reduce their involvement in overseas armed conflict. Of course, having said all of that, we must balance those conjectures by the observation that the ruptures to the liberal international order, which are seemingly being brought about by Trump's chilling relationship with longstanding allies, will uh, offset much of what I said. But let's see what happens. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's that's uh, Dan's interpretation. I, I'm a little more skeptical. <laughs> Uh, and I think that <laughs> contrast between the Brisbane and Hamburg tells us a bit about it, that uh, when the U.S. came to Brisbane, the idea was exactly to show the that the international world is united and disagree with, with uh, Putin. And I'm uh, sure enough, I, I think the message was uh, clearly seen there. Mm -hmm. Whereas, uh, so there is a demonstration of U.S. leadership and getting the world to think similarly along the U.S. lines, whereas Trump... He's not concerned about this. He's not concerned about his allies. His world 
is I would call a billiard ball world. Mm -hmm. All countries are like billiard balls. They are just crashing into each other. They are not tied. They are not connected. Uh, and he likes that. And in this billiard ball world, uh, it is the leaders that matters, and particularly decisive leaders that he likes. Uh, and they are authoritarian. So, you know, this contrast between these two meetings tells us not only leadership styles, but maybe philosophical uh, style differences. Mm -hmm. Is there any other president we can look to with respect to kind of the behavior uh, that went on uh, the, the Russian-American uh, relationship? But is there anything we can look to? Well, the closest uh, president probably was Reagan. And I'm referring here specifically to his uh, surprising double zero, that's complete disarmament, proposal made to Gorbachev at Reykjavik in 1987. And he, he took his staff by surprise and he took the world by surprise. Mm -hmm. but, but having said that, that was aberrant also, but having said that, unlike Trump, I think, and he did switch gears, and what, what followed was a very good INF conventional forces agreement and then all the unilateral reductions that ended the Cold War and began a new era where, as we point out in our data set, symmetry was an important, if ineffective, but nonetheless important tool of foreign policy. Mm -hmm. So and I agree with Peter. While Reagan and Trump both share an ideology, which includes a suspicion about multilateralism, by the way. And they're both strong-willed, independent leaders, independent from their own bureaucrats. Reagan was probably, I think, not intent on unraveling uh, the international order. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I would, I would uh, agree with that. I mean, Reagan uh, certainly was thinking in terms of a sort of world of two camps uh, and where the U.S. was leading one against the other. But this world, of course, is unfolding uh, when he meets a person like Gorbachev, whom you, as was famously said, a man you can make deals with and certainly could make deals. They are similar, Reagan and Trump, in another respect. And I think that none of them are interested in the details. And they, they don't even seem to know the details or care about that they don't know, yeah. uh, which I think is... Uh, leaves a lot of space for the ministers of foreign affairs and so on and so forth. And um, Reagan had very able such people and were willing to take them in. I'm not sure that Trump is uh, having the same regard for the people that is underneath him, so to say. He expects them more to be loyal rather than to be creative. Right. So, is the, you know, in terms of uh, these two presidents, does it tell us something at least about the way in which they interact between themselves and their own officials and uh, advisors and so forth? Is, is there this interaction which may not occur at the summit, but make its appearance uh, afterward? Yeah, I think that's that's interesting, and, and we shall see. But it seemed to me that uh, Trump came to the meeting in Hamburg fairly badly prepared or not prepared at all. Uh, he didn't have any plans really to put forward. And, of course, they did apparently work out some agreements, a ceasefire arrangement for uh, Syria. Mm -hmm. yeah. We still don't know the details about that. But also, I think very strangely, they agreed... Uh, and there should come an agreement where they agree not to interfere in each other's elections. 
which is a rather surprising arrangement. And I don't think any other American president would have agreed to anything like that mm -hmm. because the winner in such a deal is clearly Putin because the ones who need support from the outside is the democratic opposition in Russia, whereas the opposition in the United States uh, has its freedom, so to say. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a strange, I think, asymmetric deal, uh, but we still don't know the details and we should follow this in the coming days. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, we have attended not unreasonably, to focus on Trump. And I'm, to a certain degree, asking you to speculate, but, you know, basing it off of some various writings, uh, journalistic writings, uh, that, you know, focus on the fact that Trump has persistently kind of stood with uh, Putin, who, you know, and certainly in the G20 summit, uh, we find out ultimately that there were two meetings, not one meeting, and very lengthy meetings at that. And yet in the dinner meeting, there appears to be no involvement of Trump with either Angela Merkel, who is the host, or any of the others he's alert to, particularly Theresa May, let's say, from Great Britain. So um, I guess the question is, what does this... You know, what is the behavior here, not, not just of Trump, uh, but also Putin, but certainly Trump? I mean, what's going on? What, what, how do we describe and understand this relationship? Well, uh, there are probably several ways of uh, trying to understand it and then looking at the behavior to see if, in fact, one or the other of the ways is a better explanation. Um, uh, as I said before, and I'll build on that a little bit, um, the, the way to turn an adversary into an ally probably is by developing a personal relationship in which there's some degree of empathy on both sides. Right. Uh, one, of, one of your great professors from the University of Toronto, Anatole Rappaport, wrote Fights, Games and Debates back in 1960. Terrific book. And uh, using those terms, it's at least conceivable to think that Trump could be moving away from an historical fighting pattern to more of a bargaining slash debating pattern. And if that's the case, then the focus may be more about finding common ground rather than simply winning. Although I know with Trump, that's a little bit hard to believe. But then again, there may be practical reasons for the common ground argument. For example, and Peter mentioned this just a little while ago, Trump needs Russia to cooperate in Syria to defeat ISIS. They're in the midst of negotiating, and Peter mentioned this, an arrangement over spheres of influence and operating zones in and around Syria. So that, uh, for example, Trump's recent decision to remove CIA involvement in this theater may be part of that agreement, though we're not sure. Right. Yeah. All involved. However, I always have to balance the positive with uh, the more uh, cynical. And there's a more sinister interpretation uh, where these are actually just simply mutual admirers of the other's authoritarian style, where they're using public power to pursue private business interests. Well, 
it'll be interesting to see how this develops and whether their behavior will provide data about their motives, which I know are very difficult to infer, but the consequences of their behavior will be there for everybody to see. So there's another study waiting to be done. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, and obviously you're contrasting the more um, conflictual with the search potentially for common ground. And as we know, Putin and Trump appeared to agree to a joint security envelope on cybersecurity. And of course, as soon as Trump got back uh, to the United States, there was you know, quite the backlash and outcry about that. And of course, he quickly uh, resiled from, from that particular proposal. But what do we make of something like that? I, I find it uh, really remarkable, and, and even the decision by Congress uh, and united, so to say, uh, Democrats and Republicans mm-hmm. in in preventing him from from lifting sanctions on Russia, and uh, it is really remarkable because I can't remember uh, that this has really happened before that you have to rein in uh, the president uh, and uh, try to block him from doing things. So it seems to me many are worried about this. They want him to, uh, uh, you know, stand up, I think, to the the typical values. Uh, You know, you don't uh, take away pieces of other countries uh, like he did with the Crimea, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas Trump is willing to forget this in order to establish this kind of a relationship. Uh, And, uh, of course, it's, I think, on the whole, it's good if leaders can talk and, and relate to each other. But we always have to be careful there are important values there are important issues that shouldn't be uh, covered up Uh, and i think that's the worry the congress has and i think uh, we should all have that worry well and indeed i mean prior to jing hamburg president trump gave a speech in warsaw and what we saw there was no reference in that speech Uh, uh, it was quite a spellbinder but no reference in the speech to rule of law uh, to the support of uh, you know leadership and alliances, and no references to democracy, anything like that. So, how should allies now, in effect, respond based on what the behavior we've seen uh, in Hamburg and, of course, in the previous NATO and uh, meetings and so forth? You know, what should allies in Europe, in particular, but uh, also? Asian allies, what should they do in the context of global governance now? I I think you can see a sort of a debate, a European debate here between a a Merkel position, which is much more firm on principles and so on. And then you have the Macron uh, position, which is a little more flattering. Uh, Invite him to to see a a real ceremony with with the army moving up and down the Champs-Élysées and things like that and making... uh, have an impact, you relate to him in, in, a, in a different way. So I think you have the Merkel way, which is principled, and you have the Macron way, which uh, builds on his vanity. And when you look around in the world, you can see that other leaders do uh, take one or the other of these approaches. And so you can see we are now in a, in a real life experiment, uh, which one will work the best in terms of uh, forwarding uh, global governance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and also uh, the question uh, looms large as to whether uh, the future of summitry will be primarily multilateral involving right. yeah. the allies 
or will turn in the direction uh, that it's going, which is uh, bilateral between Trump and Putin. It'll be interesting to see how that develops. So, you know, kind of as a wrap up here, where do you think summits will be? Assuming that President Trump uh, fills out his his four years, where where do you think summitry is going to be in three, three and a half years? Well, uh, the European experience, of course, have been the one of reducing the drama around these summits and making them much more working sessions. And Mm -hmm. they are continuous like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think we were on the route of doing something like that, particularly with Obama and Medvedev. They seem to connect very well and were sort of good on technical issues. Uh, And then you have this other where they are more like uh, dramatic events, uh, symbolic and things like that. And and I'm I'm I think uh, my my suggestion would be that Trump and Putin both are more into this symbolic thing for I different see. reasons. Yeah. There are different symbolisms in that, but both of them like that. So we are going to see a little more fewer such meeting and a lot of excitement around them. I think that's right. I, I would agree with that. Trump and Putin have a flair for the dramatic for theater, as you, as you will. And that does contrast with almost all of the European leaders' desire for a working multilateral forum. But as you're aware, I mean, the G20 in particular, um, and G7 too, but below these leaders' meetings, which of course journalists are not particularly engaged with, but some of us who, who kind of uh, review these things do pay attention to the, the work and effort to move international policy forward. So is it not possible, you know, we'll continue to see this kind of two-level activity with a lot more uh, sparkly stuff, uh, given the fact that you've got Putin and Trump? Yeah, I, I think that that would be a good thing with these summit meetings if they also made good connections, so to say, on the lower levels, mm-hmm. you know, on the foreign ministers and, and further down, uh, because then you can establish exactly that what you talk about, which is, you know, a well-functioning system and where the leaders only get to deal with things when they are ready, when agreements are are almost finished. Right. But I haven't seen too much of that because it means that these two leaders will have to be more willing to decentralize than they are. And both of them seems to be guys that would you know, like to hang on to the to the power constantly. Uh, and so I'm, I'm worried that we will not get into that kind of a working mood. But that's that's, of course, just a guess. Yeah. And, and both both are suspicious of uh, their own ministers and their own ministries. Um, and uh, that's 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 very scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but you know there is another idea here, and the other idea is this back channel uh, notion that Kissinger kind of made famous. That maybe something could be done, you know, in a back channel uh, that doesn't involve Trump or Putin, or conversely, a back channel that Trump and Putin establish while letting uh, business proceed as normal as usual. Mm-hmm. Well, gentlemen, it's a real pleasure to have spent some time with you and to look at uh, the research you've been doing on summits and then more directly looking at the most recent summit, which, of course, is the G20. I want to thank you both for taking the time to uh, join us today. It was our pleasure. Thank you very much. It was fun. Thank you.
This Global Symmetry podcast was hosted by Alan Alexandrov, produced by Harmony Z, music by Kevin McLeod. For more information, check out globalsymmetryproject.com.